in a world where radio stations are ten a penny. Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to River Radio on the web, on mobile, and of course on Alexa. Welcome to Order, Order, Politics Unspun. We've got a busy, busy night. It's a night. The first hustings is underway as we speak now in Leeds, chaired by Nick Ferrari. But why not stay here on this channel and start digging deep into what's going on with the main policies put out by the two leadership contenders? With me now, I have Lars Swan, the arch-conservative from Royal Windsor. Good evening, uh, Lars. Hello, Linda. How are you? <laughs> I'm very, very well. I bet you're a busy, busy man this week. I, I have been incredibly busy. And popular. Absolutely. Because <laughs> you've got a vacant seat. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> okay, and also with me, I've got Richard Furs, who is the economist for the Licensed Vigilance Charity. Good evening, Richard. Good evening, Linda. Great to hear from you both. We're going to be rattling around now discussing what we see as the two main uh, policies that the candidates will be discussing. Of course, there's a whole raft of things, but the two that have kind of risen their heads over the last uh, few days, shall we say, are the economy and immigration. Later on, we're going to have Amit Verma. He's going to be talking about immigration and the situation we're facing there. But we're starting tonight, gentlemen, with the economy. Now, the way it seems to me... I'm just going to lay this out there. It's fairly straightforward. We've got one candidate who believes in dealing with inflation first and tax cuts second. That's Rishi Sunak. We've got another candidate who believes in taxing first on the back of borrowing. Have I got that right, Richard? Yeah, that about sums it up, I think, about the uh, overall broad spectrum of policies from the two, uh, the two candidates so far. But tell us, what we want to know is, what's behind that headline, or those headlines? What, what actually is Rishi Sunak's plan? And how do those two policies differ? If people are going to make their minds up, presumably they are very different, they need to know which one to go for. So just give us an idiot's guide to each one. <laughs> Not well, that you're an idiot, <laughs> but, but maybe I am. <laughs> well, you know, who knows? Let, let others be the judge of that. Um, but yeah, well, Rishi Sunak, as you, as you said, uh, is going to delay uh, any tax cuts. Clearly, the tax issue, I think, for Conservative voters is going to be a huge one. This is going to be a government uh, that has some of the highest taxes since 1949. Uh, so you can see why both candidates... Uh, are raising the issue of taxation. Uh, But, of course, this goes against the background of uh, inflation topping 9% this year. Um, So, in terms of Rishi Sunak's uh, argument, he's basically saying that we cannot slash taxes now because we have to fix inflation. Um, He has a point there, uh, and many of his policies... Uh, seem to back that up. He has been, of course, the uh, head of the Treasury, so he d- he's involved with the Treasury, he knows what's going on. He knows the situation in the UK um, in terms of the public finances. Um, put simply, that if inflation carries on to rise at its current rate, that will force... Um, the Bank of England uh, to raise interest rates, which they are doing, of course. That 
takes money out of the pockets of every um, person who has a mortgage in the UK. So millions of people are going to have less money uh, to spend. So Rishi's argument is that if I cut taxes now, that's going to have uh, the effect of making the Bank of England raise interest rates even further. Mm. Um, that is going to mean everyone's mortgages is going to get more expensive and that will actually be more expensive for people. He says it will cost families 6600 a year in terms of the higher interest rates. So that's, is that the main plank of his argument, that he wants to delay cutting taxes or is it that he sees the need to start tackling inflation? And what does in tackling inflation actually mean? What's involved in tackling inflation? Well, uh, there are different ways you can tackle inflation. Actually, uh, infl- most of the causes of inflation actually have nothing to do with things that Rishi Sunak has control over. Uh, most <laughs> of the causes are external. Politicians like to make this sort of claim that they are the ones who control inflation. They're actually not. They're actually the, peop- the, uh, the body in the UK that actually has the remit to control inflation is the Bank of England uh, and they are supposed to be independent from government. You see that was puzzling me I kept thinking he keeps talking about I'm going to tackle inflation I am going to tackle inflation and I'm asking myself how does he do that? Well, if you, one of the ways to do that is, is if uh, you can tackle inflation from raising taxes or at least um, from uh, cutting government spending or raising taxes, which is what we call contractionary fiscal policy. So that will also have a deflationary effect. Uh, so uh, if the Bank of England is trying to reduce inflation, if you think inflation is going to be a major problem, uh, then you can work in tandem with the Bank of England by... Uh, well, in his case, I don't think he, they are raising taxes because, you know, things like corporation tax are going up to 25% next year. Uh, so if you raise taxes and you restrict government spending, I don't think they can realistically cut it by much, but they can at least restrict increases in government spending, then that will also have an effect of controlling inflation. Um, and what would restricting government spending actually involve? What would that look like to us? Well, it would look pretty... Uh, that's one of the issues, uh, is how you achieve it. If you achieve it through fiscal policy, that means a lot of pain for the public. It means, uh, what are you going to cut? Are you going to cut the NHS? I don't think so. Mm. Uh, are you going to start freezing public sector pay? No, you can't do that mm. because that's been done for a decade and there's no scope to do it anymore. So in terms of exactly how you do that... Uh, there's very few options left other than raising taxes. Uh, so, uh, so are there any? Just tell me what they are. Um, well, I mean, one option is, is, is to say, well, we're not going to do it through fiscal policy. This is what Liz Truss's uh, main argument is. Uh, and we're going to allow, you know, that's the Bank of England's uh, remit. Um, and uh, we're going we're to let the Bank of England um, uh, do it through monetary policy. And we're going to focus fiscal policy on other things. So, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's one way that they, they can do it. Um, uh, essentially, um, I, think, I think Rishi Sunak's concern, uh, another concern perhaps that he has, is that the government has borrowed so extensively uh, that the scope for further borrowing uh, in terms of spending more money, because of course it will initially mean the government has less money if they start cutting taxes now. He may feel the scope for further borrowing just isn't there in the economy. Um, so I think that's, that, that's the crux of his argument so far. I'm going to bring Lars in now because I know the bean counter in our studio is not going to be very happy about borrowing money, are you? Isn't that anathema well, to you? Well, you don't really borrow money to 
give more money away. Really, it's just to me, it doesn't make sense. You're borrowing money to reduce tax. Well, actually, um, there are there are there are other ways of dealing with that, and that is not to increase the tax in the first place, like the corporation tax increase that's set to start next year. Why increase it? What's the point? Actually, the reality is, and, and I think I've said this before, and I, I will say it lots and lots of times, is if you increase corporation, if you leave, if you if you keep corporation tax back at nineteen or twenty percent the businesses will have more money to pay their staff, which will result in more tax because actually they're getting higher salaries. Therefore, the pay as you earn, the national insurance, will go back into the government. I'm not really... I don't... I'm not an economist. I just look at it from a practical point of view. And I've always wondered the question, and this is probably the fact that because I'm not an economist, where where on earth do they borrow this money from? Richard. Well, uh, precisely how the government, and it's quite interesting because Liz, Liz Truss has said some interesting things about the way the government uh, borrows money in, in that she is going to change the way the government borrows money and borrow over a longer term. But essentially the government uh, issues IOUs, uh, which is government bonds, which, which uh, are bought by uh, firms, but mostly by the Bank of England, funnily enough, uh, which uh, is how the government uh, borrows money. Uh, the more the issue the harder it becomes to issue those bonds and the more expensive borrowing uh, becomes. Mm. But because the UK is such a powerful economy, it can borrow very, very cheaply. Uh, so that's one of the um, advantages. There are arguments over how much we should borrow amongst economists and no one really agrees. Some people say we could actually borrow a lot more and therefore uh, you know, uh, we have further scope uh, to perhaps... Uh, um, worse than the public finances. Now, some pay- people say we've already borrowed too much. What uh, are the parameters of what it would be an idea to borrow then? From where to where? Thirty billion to what? Well, it's not really billions. Generally, it's done as, as, a, as, a, as a percentage of, of, of GDP. Uh, you know, in other words, um, uh, every year uh, you have what's called a, a borrowing requirement. Uh, in uh, to give you an idea of how high it has gone. Um, uh, in uh, the pandemic, it, it hit nearly 300 billion for one year because essentially the government paid people's wages uh, across the whole economy uh, for a year. Uh, put that into perspective, that's kind of in line with what Russia is currently spending on its war with Ukraine. Uh, so that is a, an enormous amount of borrowing. It's almost a major war uh, amount of borrowing. So that is in the background here. Maybe that's what's concerning uh, Rishi, Rishi Shunak. Uh, but generally the scope is... It's all compared to how big your economy is, um, how big your GDP. GDP is, of course, all of the money in the economy. This is a very large economy. It's it's one of the largest economies in the world, in the UK. And therefore, um, uh, it's a very stable economy. uh, And some argue that we could perhaps borrow more than we actually actually are. Uh, Of course, there is a real price to pay uh, for borrowing because... Uh, every year the government pays interest on those bonds um, and that's already about half the cost of the NHS every year just on I mean that's really shocking actually you wouldn't allow that to happen to a household budget would you? No, and that's the concern. So that those that can, those that are concerned about this, you know, would would, would highlight that. I mean, to put to point, uh, going to Lars's point about, um, uh, but but when you start changing taxes, things do get complicated. And when you look at things like corporation tax, you're absolutely right. One of the problems with corporation tax is that it affects investment. So um, uh, it, uh, an investment is not looking good in the UK right now. 
uh, investment is low. Domestic invest- investment is low. Foreign domestic, domestic, in- foreign direct investment, uh, that's the money coming from abroad, is, is also low. But is that, is that because of, I'm going to bring up this really controversial word, is that because of Brexit or is, is we not getting investment in the UK because of, because of the, the, the leaving the EU? Because obviously as, as, an, as somebody who's been in accounting for a while, I see on a daily basis the, the problems that clients and companies are having of importing and exporting goods particularly importing goods from within the within the eu and exporting goods so is the investment not coming into the uk because of the um bureaucracy that brexit has caused in some cases or is it just the fact that people don't want to invest invest in the uk anymore well, the short answer is yes, Brexit is having an effect. I know that people that are in favour of Brexit don't like the idea that Brexit has negative effects. But speak um, freely on this programme. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the effects is that, the, that before Brexit, the UK was one of the highest recipients of foreign direct investment in, 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 in Europe. Uh, and a lot of that has dropped off, but not all. You can't say we don't get any investment because of Brexit. That's also wrong. You know, maybe a Remainer mm. may say it's gone wrong. But there's no question. I know, many, I know a friend who has a wine business, for example, has been talking about the major problems he's got in terms of importing wine into the UK now because we've left the European Union. One thing is for certain, whether you agree with Brexit or you disagree with Brexit, is that currently we haven't sorted out the processes to make trade with Europe and the rest of the world so as what, easy as it should be. So what be. does this Boris Johnson phrase mean, get Brexit done? In fact, when we haven't? got well, brexit done no we certainly haven't and there's ongoing issues in the ports and uh, in the way that uh, goods are being processed which is still causing problems and also contributing to the rising prices it's not the biggest contributor to the inflation but it, mm. it's they, they missed a word off it said should have said get brexit almost done yeah. <laughs> um yeah i mean you, you, i mean i'm not going i'll go into the politics later on but you, um yeah you one thing you can say about Russ, he did get us out of the European Union. Whether yes. you know, we're now yes. sorting with the with the fallout yeah. of, of how he did that, but he did do that. So. Yeah, because we're because what what we're trying to focus on at the moment, gentlemen, is we are want to want to focus on economics and not politics because we're hearing an awful lot of politics day in, day out, morning, noon, and night, and actually it's a lot of white noise a lot of the time. So what we'd like to know. There's a bit more about the economic situation for real. I mean, Rishi Sunak does claim that he is giving people, you know, they might not want to hear it, he says, but I'm going to give you the truth because you deserve it and we have to be dealing with the truth. But I don't think he's that clear about, for example, tackling inflation. He doesn't go into how you tackle inflation and how painful that might be. No, it's worth pointing out that most of the inflation is coming from external factors. So uh, Rishi Sunak doesn't control the war in Ukraine, uh, which is controlling mm. a lot of food prices increases. Rishi Sunak has no control over uh, China's uh, zero COVID policy, which is causing problems in manufacturing Huge. in China and is pushing prices up. Rishi Sunak has no control over the problems in the global supply chains, which are pushing up prices across, uh, across, the, glo- across the globe. So, and of course, Rishi Sunak does not control monetary policy. He doesn't control interest rates. So again... His impact on inflation is going to be limited, and he's not—he's not actually running for chancellor. He's running for prime minister. Yeah. So this this will be the job of his, of, of his chancellor. So he's assuming that he's going to get a chancellor that follows uh, his line, basically. Yeah, I, I suppose he'd have to, but that only leaves him, as we discussed a little bit earlier, with cutting cutting public spending. That's what it leaves him. That's with. right. Yeah, and I think the problem with that uh, is that 
how much scope is there for that right now in the UK? Um, I think things are, uh, we we're looking at very tight labour markets. We're looking at uh, public sector uh, bodies that haven't had a pay increase for a long time. And we're looking at record, you know, staff shortages in the NHS. We're looking at staff shortages in, in, in key professions like teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not going to be able to go in there and say, actually, we just freeze your ways for the next 10 years, because that's what it will take. Uh, there's no scope for that anymore. You won't have any teachers. You won't have any nurses. You won't have any doctors in the UK. So, how do you, you know, you know, uh, and and a lot of these tax increases could also be very, very negative. Uh, I think 25% corporation tax after we've left the European Union is a very dangerous level of corporation tax. Mm. The UK now has to attract investment, has to attract and make it a business-friendly environment because that's what we were sold as Brexit. Being in a business-friendly environment is not going to be 25% corporation tax. Mm. That's not going to encourage people to start businesses. That's not going to encourage companies to invest because you're not getting uh, back what you need. Because businesses need to overcome those extra costs from leaving, leaving the European course, Union. Which course, if, I, if I run a business in the UK mm. and I'm looking at corporation tax as a key driver as to why I would invest in staff in in infrastructure in the uk i uh, all i need to do is look to northern ireland where corporation tax is 10 percent if you live and operate within the northern ireland and they would they did that because because northern ireland was really struggling to compete with southern ireland that had a 10 percent corporation tax rate and the number of tax breaks there's a reason why google dell and all these big corporations are in southern ireland because the tax rates are quite low and why you know i can move to, i can move to, to Cyprus, pay twelve and a half percent corporation. I'm, I have to caveat in the fact that I, I, I'm, I've got dual nationality, so I still can move anywhere I like in Europe and and start a business, no problem. I'd have to live there, but but it seems to me that the UK, come next April, will be the highest corporation tax rate in Europe. Yes, um, and well, uh, the, I mean, some of the European can't. Economies are very high tax. You know, Germany is is not a low tax economy. France no. is not a low tax economy. That was the UK's niche. That was the advantage mm. that we had as a yeah. country. We were lower tax than most of our major European competitors, and we were more business friendly than most of our major European mm. uh, competitors. And it does look like you know there is a danger that we are going to lose that. The thing that really attracted companies and investment, you know, the thing that made the city of London so much more successful than other European uh, financial capitals. Uh, there's a danger that we can lose that, that advantage if we start hiking things like corporation tax. Um, so, you know, uh, how effective would, would a tax... Like, well, you know, in the short term, maybe you'll get some extra money out of firms. In the long term, you could do some serious damage to the UK economy. Mm. So if we, if we look at... Um Richie said not having that much rooms to manoeuvre whatever he says about um, cutting uh, or dealing with inflation he hasn't really followed up on how he's going to do that and certainly not on the painful aspects of it he hasn't been he says he's truthful but he hasn't been very clear about that at all but Liz Truss who wants to um, to cut taxes immediately and she can only really do that by cutting public spending or by borrowing. And she's made it clear that she wants to borrow. That's now, right. I'm just interested in this one point because I was reading about it last weekend. One of the financial experts wrote a column at the weekend and they said that it's all very well to cut spending and tell people that that stimulates growth. But it doesn't necessarily. It only stimulates growth if people believe that the policy is sustainable. If they don't think it's sustainable, they don't start spending. And therefore, it does not stimulate growth. People just, you know, hide the money under the mattress. 
Well, you're absolutely right in that um, uh, business and consumer confidence is is, is going to play a huge um, impact in in how effective uh, a government stimulus, or what we call government spending increase, um, uh, would um, uh, generate economic growth. Cutting taxes, um, I think there are lots of reasons uh, why, why you would go for that. I mean, instinctively, the Conservatives are supposed to be a low-tax party, mm. uh, and they're not. They've lost that argument. They go into the next election that they cannot argue that they're a low-tax party, uh, which is astonishing, really. Um, uh, but to be fair, that's because of the pandemic and a few other exogenous shocks, isn't yes. it? Well, there are, I mean, it is, we are in uh, we have three major economic shocks in the UK. Um, how do you get out of that? Well, of course, one argument is that you, could, you can uh, go for what we call expansionary policy. You can, um, you can, you can, you can start cutting taxes. Uh, some of the taxes that she's um, uh, look, looking at cutting, uh, she wouldn't obviously keep corporation tax as it is currently at 19%. Uh, so that would be reversing uh, the, the policy uh, that's happening. Um, she would reverse the rise in national insurance. National insurance um, is often... Um, people think that it's uh, funding the NHS. It isn't. It's just a tax. Uh, it's one of the myths that politicians like to uh, peddle. Mm. Uh, it's just a tax. Mm-hmm. It just goes in the big tax pot. Yeah. Uh, so I think people swallow. Well, do you, what do you, well, explain this to me because I've always been a, a hypothecation tax is. Hypo- yeah, hypothecated tax is a tax that um, is has a direct purpose. Uh, so you do it for and, and people license. think the TV yeah. license is probably the best right, uh, okay. example of that. Um, so um, yeah. Um, but uh, you know um, her policy is very broadly it's all it's all cutting taxes isn't it so yeah and you can see why and some of those taxes are are targeted taxes um, uh, particularly uh, for example the green levy which is a specific tax on um, energy bills energy crisis at the moment in the UK um, is um, uh, one of the things that she would get rid of of course that tax is is, is supposed to fund um, investment in in green energy now uh, one of the issues I think uh, I have with that is that um, there is this war in Russia where our reliance on gas and oil is, is, you know, we need to very, very quickly use less gas and oil. Whether you are an environmentalist or not, uh, that is what's making energy so expensive in the UK. So we're going to have to find alternatives. Uh, and those alternatives are going to require significant investment. Uh, so that money's got to come from somewhere. So if it doesn't come from that tax... It's probably going to have to come from government borrowing. Uh, so if you get rid of that green levy, but that will save people um, uh, up to 153 pounds on their on their energy bills. Uh, so uh, for many people in the UK struggling, uh, you know, to pay energy bills, that will put more money in their pockets and more ease, at least uh, in the short term. It's supposed to be a temporary suspension. Um, uh, some of the uh, the day to day living uh, um, uh, cost issues that people have, and I think you know uh, there's some merit in that. You, you, you can't just go broadly say I'm cutting taxes. You have to sort of think about what the impact of these taxes are uh, to real people yes. on on yeah. the ground. And the energy bills are going to put a lot of people in in extreme poverty. Oh, in the UK. Re- the, so. I, heard, I t- was talking to Lars earlier, and I was listening to Martin Lewis on, on um, the radio this morning. And uh, he, I've never heard him that upset before. Never, never heard him that upset. No. And we're talking about energy bills going to people's homes for £500 a month. Absolutely, well, yes. That's crippling. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, people won't, don't have that kind of they just uh, don't disposable have it. income. So here's an interesting argument I put. And this is completely non-conservative argument. Not really. another one, Lars. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it would be, if, if we've got such high energy bills, 
and energy companies are making huge fortunes, why does the government not consider the renationalization of the energy companies and the water companies because and my my argument for doing that is energy being warm having heat and having water are basic human rights therefore as a basic human right do you think or do you I'd be interested in your opinion as to whether we should renationalize that basic human right and use any of the excess money that the energy companies make to give back to the people in terms of discounts and then keep smaller portions of that money to reinvest back into renewable energies rather than just taxing people on because I sometimes feel that and this is going to be very controversial I I always sometimes feel that governments use um use climate change as an excuse to tax people more um well i i'm not sure i mean um you, you probably have better knowledge of the inner workings of government than yeah. me and what, yeah. what the motives are for, uh, for policies I, t- I tend to just analyze what the impacts of those uh, those, so the, those so the in terms really, of nationalising, uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not instinctively in favour of nationalisation of, of industries. But whatever you uh, on, on key industries like energy, I do think that you're not going to avoid at least some government intervention. Uh, governments already heavily subsidise, for example, the major power plants. Yeah. Um, I do think energy. The go- one of the, my big criticisms, this is a po- political point, not an economic point, of the... Well, uh, this is a political Of the, of the Conservative <laughs> government. Um, I think they've got energy policy badly wrong for a really? long period of time. Yeah. I think it, was, it wasn't an interesting policy, so very, very little was done about it. It was, it was left to slide, and I think we're now seeing the impacts of that. Why do you think they left it to slide? Because people took it for granted. You know, people weren't worried about energy uh, until energy became a massive problem. But a lot of the energy infrastructure, there was a massive underinvestment in, in um, power stations, in storage facility, even basic things like storage facilities for gas in the, in the UK. Uh, they've all been sort of mothballed. Um, and uh, now we're seeing that's having a major impact on, on energy prices. I, so I do find that policy. incredible, though, that you, you, you think of the two things that we actually need is food and fuel. Yeah. How could anybody underestimate the importance of fuel? I mean, did they get bored with it? Were they asleep at the wheel? You know. I just don't think it's been a major uh, policy. It's not been a, it's not been a major drive uh, politically um, until it was a major issue. Okay, until it was a problem, it wasn't something politicians were focusing on. No. Um, and, you know, energy... It, it, it energy wasn't a was, kind of gripping yeah. vote winner, was it? It wasn't no. a sort of high-profile thing with bells on it that captured the public's attention as we went to the polls. Energy was just energy. No, uh, but it just, just shows, you know, when governments don't do the boring things... Yeah, um, look what happens. Look what happens, yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so, you know, that, that's my opinion there, but... Um, uh, clearly, uh, uh, Richie has also gone on this bandwagon of helping with energy bills because he's now said he's going to scrap the uh, uh, 5% um, uh, VAT on energy bills as well, uh, which is another interesting one politically because he rejected that policy when it was uh, raised by Labour just a few months ago. Uh, so, um, you know, both are now saying they're doing something on, on energy bills, um, uh, but um, 
I think I think the government is going to have to do something about energy bills. So either you are are directly subsidising through spending, you get like, like the government already already has done. They're giving every household um, uh, I think four hundred pounds in October. Yeah. Uh, so either you're spending government money to further help people, or you're doing something about tax. So I don't think you can avoid that. Uh, to, to to be fair, uh, 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 so you know. Both, both are going to have to do something about energy because if you don't do something about energy, you're losing the next election. What Martin Lewis is saying, that it, though, that is the government isn't doing anything quickly enough. That I, I mean, he's a bit... This is a very altruistic remark of his, but he said he thought that Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Richie Sunak should all get in a room together and start making a big, big decision, a collective decision, to support people and roll it right out right now. Yeah, it's not going to happen, is it? I agree. Um, but yeah. it's not going to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, at, at the moment we've just got political upheaval, so we don't know, yeah. you know at the moment it's, we don't know who's going to be in charge or what their team's going to be or what their focus is going to be. So it's unlikely to happen. It'd be nice if it did happen, but it's unlikely. Um, so, so what do you think of the, the comment I made earlier that um, you, can, you can cut tax and you can, you can hope that people, that will instigate spending and that people go out and that might, you know, in, that might add some dynamic movement into the economy but I think people are much more cautious than they were pre-pandemic and they might just sit back and say well the whole situation is a little bit risky I don't think this is sustainable I'm not going to spend much um, yeah, I mean, uh, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right in that as it is. You know, will this make people more confident, or how will people react to a tax cut? Will that necessarily mean more spending in the economy? People mm. will go out and buy big holidays, start buying cars again because they're not buying big ticket purchases like cars because they're worried about the future. Um, it's unlikely, um, but that's, I suppose, one of the arguments uh, in favour of Liz Truss's um, uh, overall policy is that, in the grand scheme of things. Will this actually be inflationary, which is what Richie Sunak's criticism is? Mm. Uh, and the answer is, well, there's a lot of other stuff going on uh, in the other direction. Uh, the bank are going to be raising interest rates. And we don't know if some of these cost pressures na- internationally are going to start to ease off over mm. the next uh, two or three years. Uh, so in that sense, you know, I, there is, there, there is the, you know, an argument that you should, probably should be looking to put a bit more money in people's pockets and ease some of the pressure because the government won't be able to issue uh, ease all of the pressure on, on people's pockets, but maybe tax cuts um, will have an effect. And if you start sending a message, perhaps, that uh, the UK is a high-tax economy, uh, uh, as um, Richie Sunak's 25% uh, might do to businesses, there may be long-term impacts for the UK. Um, of that uh, so yeah I mean um, the, the answer is no it's not necessarily uh, if it, it doesn't it's not necessarily going to stop a, a recession if, if, if Liz Truss yeah. cuts, cuts tax um, but the recession probably isn't definite yet no we need two UK. negative we need negative growth in two quarters don't we yeah consecutive quarters currently the UK economy is still growing so um, uh, you know uh, I, th- I think the, the the bigger argument against list trust list trust's tax cuts is that you're going to have fiscal policy and monetary policy going in two different directions the bank of England are trying to get inflation down um, and theoretically at least cutting taxes is going to be inflationary uh, or because mm. it's definitely going to be an expansionary she says she's not going to cut government spending which basically means she's going to increase government spending because there are lots of things pushing government spending up right now you're going to have to increase the wages of public sector workers you're going to have to spend more on defense for example uh, which both have kind of admitted in, the, in their policies so, so let me ask you about <laughs> confidence with these two can- 
candidates. You're you're a, you're a, an economist. Um, which one are you most confident in, from an economic point of view? Which one inspires your confidence the most? Well, it's a difficult one. Um, uh, I'd say probably Rishi. Uh, just to know that he's that he's had this is what he's done, really, isn't it? Uh, he, he's do, he has been the person dealing with a pretty major economic shock in terms of the pandemic. And I think he did get quite a lot of calls right uh, during the pandemic as Chancellor. Uh, so, you know, he has proved that he can deal with some pretty uh, major economic uh, situations. Uh, but in terms of, I suppose, the impact on the ground, I, I, I lean towards Liz, Liz Truss in terms of, instinctively, I don't like the idea of a high corporation tax. So some of his policies make me think, well... Instinctively, I look at Richard, and I think probably you're the more competent of the two candidates. But I probably like some of Liz, Liz Truss's policies, uh, and I also like the fact that she has said these, these are my policies, uh, which Rishi hasn't always been that clear on. You know, um, uh, Liz Truss is actually sp- spelling out in much more detail what her policies are, which does make her policies more easy to attack because she's mm. the one actually telling us what she's going to do in a little bit more detail than what Rishi is doing. But because she's so clear, you're saying it's a little bit more confidence-inspiring because she's clear. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, I, I can't say that I'm particularly 100% sold on either, either candidate at, at this mm. stage, but, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so flip a coin, really. Um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Does, has it come it, to that? But it, but it is pretty much that, isn't it? It's yeah. Flip a coin. Because, what do you, you know, think, Lars? They're both front, they were both front bench... Um, um, ministers mm. in all Secretary of State in one form or another. My, my, and I've said it before, I'm, I would have much preferred someone completely fresh, completely new, mm. new ideas, and not tainted by the old guard of the current cabinet. See, because the, pr- the problem is, I, s- I suspect, definitely amongst the Tory party faithful and certainly amongst Conservative voters, they might look at the fine detail and say, well, Rishi, you know, He's, he's, he's the one that stabbed Boris in the back. It was his resignation that triggered everything. And, and Liz, at least Liz stayed in post and, you know, she didn't resign and she was clear about her support for Boris. She never wavered. But the problem is that everyone in that cabinet is tainted. It, that it, you either had a clean break candidate or you did not. In the minds of the great British public, I suspect that Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss are coming from the same space. They don't draw those tiny distinctions. No, they don't. And you had you had two there that were completely new. You had Kemi, um, and you had Tom Tukin Hat, <laughs> and Penny Morden. Penny Morden was, wasn't really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had you had some there that were, but of course, when they're the front runner in a in a in a leadership challenge, you you almost Certainly, they're never going to get all the way to home get base. Get all the way to home base, really. That's that's that that becomes the problem. So, who who do you think is going to get over the line first, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss? Well, if I was if I was looking at an accountant for businesses, I would say that Liz Truss would be the one they would go for on the basis that they're going to reduce their corporation tax. Because, mm. but the problem with the, the problem with this country and corp and and corporate business law is that that companies are legally ob- obligated to maintain a shareholder value well actually in reality you should protect your employees before you protect your shareholders mm. but it doesn't work that until they make that change um th- i think that there will always be business owners that want to pay as little tax as possible of course that's a natural inclination yeah. Yeah. so i think i think on on the phase of lower taxation liz trust will and, and looking at some of the artwork on 
I know you shouldn't really use face because you're in moment of truth, but um, <laughs> I think she had a four. She you know the poll they did that forty percent of the people were in favour of Liz mm. Truss as opposed to eighteen percent for Rishi Sunak. You see, the problem is as well. You touched upon this earlier, Richard. Is that there are there are big big external factors at play here. We know we're in, a, we're in for a rough ride for two years. So we're getting a new leader mid-term. They haven't got five, four or five years to make good, to do stuff that might you know, get them in, voted in in the next election. They've only got two years. And actually, if all the, the big factors are outside factors, over which they have very little control, we've talked about that this evening, how likely are, are they to win the next... How likely are the Conservatives to win the next election? It's going to be a very tough call, isn't it? I think it is, and uh, I think uh, one of the, politically the problem with Rishi Sunak's um, policies may make economic sense uh, right now, but politically, are you going to go to an electorate when you're not willing to um, spend more on the NHS, when you're not willing to, when you're raising taxes, when you're putting, you know, you're not willing to help enough uh, with people's energy bills? Uh, people will. That's what people are going to remember when they go to the polls. Uh, so you know. It's hard to see how Rishi is going to sell. You know, he's saying, oh, we're going to wait. The inflation's fixed. And then we're going to lower taxes. Well, he's not going to fix inflation before the next no. ele- election. I can just picture it. You, you, you know, you get to the election and, you know, Rishi comes up, right, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to put up tax. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you anything. Vote for me because I'm a great guy. It's just not going to work, is it? People want money in their pocket. That's all they think about is how much money have I got in my pocket? Mm. And if their money in their pocket is dwindling and dwindling, dwindling, they're going to vote for whichever guy or girl or lady or whatever is going to give them more money in their pocket as disposable income because ultimately that's what counts. And, and or, or they think will give them more money. Think they will give them more yeah. money because that's what counts. That 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 helps them to go on their nice holiday to Benidorm <laughs> or somewhere like that. Um, that's just the way that people think. You know, poli- people in politics don't necessarily think that. What's right for the... What's right for the... Um, what the, well, the, Margaret the Thatcher is- used to say it really well, and she used to say, she used to say in, in Cabinet, the two things she used to ask, is it the right thing to do and will it work? And they and I think politicians should ask themselves every time they make a decision, they should ask that question: Is it right for the people, and will it work? And if neither of the, if you can't answer both of those questions in the positive, then just don't do it. Yeah, but isn't that fundamentally what's been the problem with this administration, and in fact several other administrations around the world, is the rise and rise of the populist leader. Now, that's a problem for economics, isn't it? Because people, politicians, will start to campaign on the basis of what is popular, what will get them voted in, and that is inevitably a short-term measure, not a long-term strategy. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, uh, uh, this is a political view, but uh, Mm. uh, my view is that a lot of people that I respected in the Conservative Party have been pushed to the margins, uh, competent politicians uh, with a long history of working well in government and the extremes of the Conservative Party, too, me- too much of that has come into, into government. The yeah, into and the government. And they're all yeah. about opinions, they're all about sound bites. They don't, I don't think there's a lot of the mechanisms that make things work, but it's not always there. Now, um, 
that's what's causing problems in the government. That's what's made the government dysfunctional. That's what's led to the downfall of, of the Prime Minister, because the Prime Minister was that one. He's led a government that's been kind of that way. Um, so... Um, and it's, 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 you know, you look at people like John Major, speak, every time John Major speaks, I'm like, wow, you know, that's what I think. You're brilliant. Well done. Yeah. You know, and he, he's so eloquent and, uh, but he's, he's on the margins. Yeah. He's now, he's now he's on the margins. He's better now than he was when he was in power. Well, yeah. I mean, he's very, very, he was, he was, he used to be painted as grey and boring. I think the public would love grey and boring right now, wouldn't yeah, they? that's true. Instead of shock after shock, problem after problem, you know, how am I going to pay my bills? I'd love a boring government. I'd love a boring, you know, yeah. not, not, not to paying attention to what's going on so um yeah i you know that that's my view and um unfortunately you know i i don't think the public wants another populist um uh mm. leader I, I think they want someone who's going to be competent whether they get that or not is, is another, another matter, matter. But they're, not, they're not always populist because look at rwanda Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let me get started on that. Yeah. And on that subject, I think we've got our um, immigration specialist, uh, Amit Verma. Is Amit there waiting to have a chat with us about immigration? Hi, Linda. Yes, how Hi. are you doing? Hi, how are you doing, Amit? It's good to meet you. Um, good evening, yes. Uh, it's great to have you on the programme, actually, because um, I, I, we've been talking to Rich, Richard about the economy, and my feeling is that as we start to go forward now into a two-year period of electioneering, I guess, even now, two, two years out, is certain topics will become, in a way, weaponised. They will be brought forward, because... In a sense, it's very easy to make glib remarks about them and to turn them into seven-second soundbites, and immigration is one of those subjects. What do you think? Well, yes. I mean, um, firstly, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, um, so in regards to being a specialist, well, um, <laughs> uh, I'm not a barrister or anything like that. But no, I but in many respects you are, law, yeah. yeah. Um, but starting on, on 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 a point where, let's say, the, the Strasbourg court granted the last-minute injunctions barring the Home Office from, you know, deporting migrants back to Rwanda, um, the intervention um, was the, because the, the the flights being grounded was because of the um, European Courts of Human Rights. Yeah. And going back to um, everyone's mention about getting Brexit done, um, think about an external court such as the European Commission of Human Rights having greater powers than the UK's own Supreme Court. Some people might see this to be quite illogical. Mm, well, people did see it at the time. I was watching very closely as the plane waited on the tarmac, and the and the 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 movement from the European Court of Human Rights was very very last minute. If you remember it, I mean they, that plane was virtually ready to take off, um, and the European yeah. Court of Human Rights stepped in, and and that that actually caused a lot of resentment amongst some people. And there is the speculation that the British government now might do might take measures to distance ourselves from the European Court of Human Rights. Oh well, um, I, I would hope so, um, because that was a, the, the, the general view, um, you know, upon um, the, the British people voting for um, Brexit. Really, isn't it interesting? Actually, because if you if you go and look at the European UN, the United Nations um, Court of Human Rights, it was it was actually built off the back of the Second World War. And it was built by a British prime. It was it was formed by a British prime minister. So actually, to say we're going to distance our 
ourselves away from something that we had a huge impact in founding. The whole idea was to stop something happening that happened in the Second World War with Hitler happening again. Mm. That's the whole purpose of the European Court of Human the United Nations Court of Human Rights. So it's it's interesting that why would we distance ourselves from something we had a huge impact in creating in the first place? Well, because as uh, Amit is saying, we yeah. voted to come out of Europe, we yeah. have voted for Brexit, and it's a bit silly to bang on about how we are now going to be in control of our borders, we're going to be in control of this, that and the other, we're going to take back control, when in this one instance, we are not in control. We're not, but, 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 but the, U- the UN Court of Human Rights predates us joining Europe, the EU in the Europe, um, the economic area. Amit, what, do you th- what do you think of that, Amit? Well, at, at this precise moment in time, there's, um, what we're facing is there's no formal ap- appeal process for the government, but at, at the moment the high, there's, a, there's a high court case lodged um, where the ECHR is going to reconsider a dis- 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 decision, beg your pardon, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's the UK government... Um, you know, they're gonna they're, they're going to be making an application for a second flight, mm. but they have to wait for a judicial review to be heard on the policy. Mm. I mean, we can talk about. Oh, we'll be waiting know, a long time well, for that, won't we? Yeah, exactly. We've got we've got such as the um, the United Nations. Um, I think I forgot his name. Um, George George Branditz if that's how you pronounce his name, he was Australia's most senior diplomat in the UK, and he had insisted at the UN Refugee Agency that we're not breaking any law. And that was in response to the UN Refugee Agency saying that it's a breach of international human rights. So um, it's quite a complex area of law. So, so just give me just give me some sort of idea of this. If if they in fact need a, a judicial review to get the next flight off the ground, and judicial reviews, generally speaking, take a little bit of time, will they get another? F- whoever's leader of the party, I'm just interested in this one point. Will they get another flight off the ground to Rwanda? You're, you're touching on a very very important point. Preparations for the second flight was due to be heard at the High Court on 19th of July. Um, that's been delayed due to the applicants' legal teams, you know, preparing certain documents and um, the Conservative Party, you know, having they're going, they're going through this elect, uh, election uh, process for the new Prime Minister. Um, the good thing is, is that I've been reading since since all of these selections, the, the, the selection process started. We have all of the candidates, member of Parliament, who so are all in favour of the Rwanda policy. Um, obviously, you've got. I mean, the only person that I've I, I've heard touching base in respect of this specific topic is Liz Trust, where she's basically open to negotiations with such as Turkey, who wants to just basically they want to expand the actual um, regime. Um, but obviously, Turkey they've got millions of Syrians, etc., etc. Um, the disadvantage of this case being delayed i would have put for 
um, put forward is is that the Home Office um, has probably released about 50 migrants who were in detention pending removal to Rwanda um, just because individuals can be detained only if there is a reasonable prospect of them being removed imminently. Right, and if there's no prospect of the flight taking off, they've probably got to let them all out before they start the process all over again. I mean, it's... And and, and actually, how feasible is this? You've got a 767, I think, standing on a military airfield, waiting to take 130 people <laughs> to Rwanda, when we know that so far this year, 15,000 people have crossed the channel on inflatables, and more and more are coming i mean isn't that sort of you know uh, just chipping away at the problem it's 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 it looks to me and it looks to a lot of people like a policy which is designed to grab attention grab headlines but in fact won't solve the problem at all i think you you've got a good point there and um well let's just talk about labor's view on this um they vowed to abandon the government's policy of sending migrants to Rwanda. And what's their solution? Oh, go using, on. The mo- using the money instead of, you know, using the money instead, you know, to, to hire hundreds of private investigators to infiltrate people smuggling gangs. I mean, what would that achieve? You're giving people, you're giving private investigators lots and lots of money to identify who's the, you know, the people smuggling gangs. Then you're going to go have to convict them first when the prime problem is is stopping people making false claims when they're here. There is absolutely no issue, I do not believe, um, and obviously the, the view's my own, that we can hear asylum claims or refugee claims anywhere we want in the, country, in the world, beg your pardon. Okay. So here's, a, here's an interesting policy. Here is a very interesting policy, which has come from a, a friend of mine who is a, who's a, an immigration lawyer, but he, he, would, he, he unfortunately, I, I couldn't get him on because of his son was called hospital. So his, his policy is that we need, basically, we need to work with the United Nations Court of Human Rights to have a global asylum claiming centre to assess all the claims. For those applicants that don't have any identity documents, their identity should be assessed by a specialist team of assessors and then they should be given deemed identity and a UN Court of Human Rights travel document. The members of the 1951 Convention should all sign up to receiving back to their country failed asylum seekers that have been given deemed identity to their country and that should be not negotiable. All member states of the 1951 Convention should shoulder the burden of all asylum claims. And for those asylum seekers that enter the UK across the Channel, once they arrive, they should be taken to the nearest UN Court of Human Rights Asylum Processing Centre, and this will be an effective deterrent to those making perilous journeys across the Channel. Yeah, but I don't know, I don't know if it is a deterrent. But... But well, the other the point he really the other point he made is that successful asylum seekers should be sent to member states in fair way, taking into account their population and their gross domestic product. Asylum seekers should have the option to choose the country if they prove that they have immediate family members settled in that country. Mm. And and his the most important point is we urgently need an asylum summit to address the asylum crisis, um, where all not all members of the 1951 convention are required to attend mm. and and he believes that the uk is best place to do that okay so amit what do you think of that i think i i, I agree to a certain extent 
I think each case is uh, based on its own specific facts. Mm. Having a specific, um, how how can I say, um, dome where all applications are received, where is everyone going to go? Because, okay, fair enough, the countries have signed up and ratified to this treaty, but who decides which country they're going to go? The, the whole issue is is that people come here and make a claim but what we're saying is okay that's absolutely fine you've got here but we're sending you over there file your papers and then we'll hear it if you succeed you're absolutely fine to come in but i think with all of these countries coming in having you know gone going through Bre- Bre- the, the whole brexit issue i think we don't want them to be really you know you know concentrating on signing up to certain treaties with other countries where we're we're just pro trying to deal with our own problems in this country first dealing with our own law and things like that so so i I just want to ask you something because this is something i i looked up because i puzzled over it we describe the people coming into this country on inflatables as i've heard i've heard broadcasters describe them as illegal immigrants now now they're not illegal immigrants and they're not illegal asylum seekers are they at that point they're just asylum seekers no one's legal or illegal well, it depends if they make an application, isn't it? I mean, uh, if if, if someone has got really. here on a boat and he's gone into, I don't know, London and he hasn't made a claim, he's an illegal immigrant, isn't yeah, he? He can so. be an illegal immigrant, but what I'm saying, when we're dealing with asylum seekers, and I work with them every day, day in, day out, yeah. oh, right. and, and, and whilst I accept that uh, we need to be in control of our borders, I do, I do think we have to certainly be that, but when you're dealing with asylum seekers, and I've never met one, not one, that wasn't fleeing terror or persecution, um, when they come to this country, they are seeking asylum, they, they are not somehow illegal, they're, they're neither legal or illegal, because they have to go into a process to find out whether they're deemed, um, they're deemed okay to pass through the system to get to, to, to improve their immigration status in this country. Is that the legal position? I think, I think, um, I think how you described it is like a process and procedure. We have, we, we have to, we can't forget the fact that whoever's trying to come here, their case might be, they might be fleeing their country because they're gay. They might be fleeing because they people are trying to kill them in their country. There's all sorts of reasons. What, what the wonderful situation is here that we have a beautiful country that would hear their case. And if they're in actual, you know, danger then we will give them safe sanctuary here in the uk but we didn't because at least two or three of those people who were waiting on board the 767 to go to rwanda at least one had been in fear of his life and had been threatened with torture and then death by the security forces within his country so you know we you've got to bear bear that in mind these people you it's very difficult to in my experience it's very difficult to find asylum seekers who are just popping over the channel to make some money that's the whole reason why we want they want to hear their claim when they're in rwanda yeah, but isn't the point when they get to Rwanda, they, they they can't come even when they win, they can't come back to Britain. Oh no, I think that's quite the opposite. Yeah, if, I think if they've got a successful claim, then obviously the Home Office, office will make um, precautions. A, to... And at that point, they get indefinite leave to remain in the UK. Oh uh, no, that... not in, yeah, maybe depends on what the Home Office sees fit. Okay, does that mean they have to get their own flight back? 
Lars, trust you to be <laughs> counting the beans. Oh, we paid by the taxpayers, such as yourself. <laughs> but, but, there's, but it's important to recognise, isn't it? Because people get very confused about this. I've heard loads and loads of journalists get very confused. There is a big difference between evacuees who, who have been evacuated from Kabul, for example, or, yes. um, or, or the people who, who fled Ukraine, who were given family visas or resettlement visas, and there yes. are refugees and there are asylum seekers. There are many grades of people. It would surprise me if there was an actual refugee on that plane to Rwanda. Hmm. Well, I, I can't really comment on who was on that plane and who, who was or wasn't. But what I'm saying um, is the bulk of the issue we're dealing with here is asylum seekers. Yes, I mean, of course, yeah. No, um, no, but I mean, not refugees, for example. Well, I mean, the refugees that came in from Kabul came in under yeah. the Arab scheme. There's 15,000 of them, and they will all be allowed to remain here in this country for a period of time. Same is true of all the people coming in from Ukraine. They'll all be allowed to re- remain yeah. here, I think, for three years. And say there's 10,000 of those, there's 20,000, there's another 5,000 coming from uh, Afghanistan. So you might get up to 30,000. But the real bulk of the numbers are the asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what everyone says, and I was listening to a, a lot of this uh, um, last week, is that what we actually want to establish for these people are safe routes into the UK. Yes, and them being just generally safe depending on their case, you know, I mean, as I specifically previously yeah, said. of course. They are in danger, and, 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 and the beautiful thing about this country is um, keeping people safe if we feel that they have a legitimate claim. That's the whole specific issue here. But a safe Determining- route doesn't, doesn't, a safe route doesn't mean some kind of mystical pathway through Europe. No, 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 no. It's a All it means is that you have stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you have um, recourse to public funds or not, that will be determined on the caseworker mm-hmm. uh, of the entry clearance officer or at the home office. And uh, upon that, I mean, most likely everyone's going to be, um, you know, be supported by the government. But um, depending on their case and the outcome, I think uh, if you've got a legitimate claim, that's 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 what it is, and that's what we're trying to figure out here. Instead of all of the refugees staying in the UK. While their claims being heard, let's just put them where we think that they'll be absolutely safe for the moment, determine their claim, and then obviously we'll ship them back if we feel to. Okay. See, I, I think they should be allowed to work, and then my reasoning for that is because then they can contribute. Pay tax. That, well, they can pay tax, contribute to the economy, and even if you if you um, you have. But a you curf- don't know if they're terrorists, or you don't know where that money's going. That's the only problem. Well, no, you don't. You don't know that, but you, but we're not we're not talking. You know big jobs yeah. we're talking you know probably would help with our hospitality industry and all that i mean of. let's face it um Amit, what's interesting is that nadine sahawi the the ex now ex chancellor of the exchequer is a refugee he did arrive mm. in this country as a 10 year old iraqi boy um whose whose father had fled from the secret yeah. police so there are very very successful uh, exactly. refugees that that come here as asylum seekers mm. not as refugees as asylum seekers and contribute to the economy and to our of way of course. life. There's always pros and cons to every single situation, but the main, I think, I'm not the MI5 or anything, but the, I think the main criteria over here is to make sure that we let people in the country that are mentally sound and safe so they could, you know, integrate with the 
population that we've already got here because um, it's, it's, it's you know it's a multicultural country. I think um, we just we just I just think that we just have to just be more security conscious. Uh, oh no, I totally agree with you there. I've been a foreign correspondent in the past, and uh, believe me, I've been up close and personal with very many sort of conflict-driven situations. So I can understand how there can be problems. But maybe the answer is to invest more in the actual. Um, questioning situation the the the, the when, when we deal with asylum seekers maybe we just need to be more thorough in the process that we use to assess their suitability to get status to remain in this country yeah yeah yes i'm all for that expensive business though <laughs> Well, 150 million, I think. Is it, is it 150 million? That's How we're, interesting. We're already paying to Rwanda, whether this gets legal, um, uh, legally approved or not. Yeah. Well, if, if you look at the previous flight, it was about £40,000 per passenger based on based on what I worked out for the cost of the flight. Because there were only six. Because there were only six left on board. I did see some research by the Adam Smith Institute, and I think the quote was that very few planes will get off the ground, even if it's legal, because it's going to affect such a tiny proportion of asylum seekers in the UK. So yeah. it just looks very much like a... Like a gimmick. It isn't very environmentally sound either, is it? Flying six people to Rwanda. Not particularly, no. Mm. Have you? Uh, Rami, I just wanted to ask you very, very quickly. Well, I think we've got to wrap up. What do you think of refugees being put on um, disused cruise liners? Very briefly, twenty seconds. Beg your pardon, sorry, I didn't quite. quite oh no, I think we've lost the opportunity. I asked you very briefly about being, uh, asylum seekers being put on disused cruise.